Uh, second thing that's important to understand as we approach uh, this particular passage is a concept that's all over the Bible, but not super familiar to us. It's called corporate representation. It's the idea of one representing the many, of one figure, or maybe a literal figure or figurative figure, that, uh, that accomplishes or does or represents things about all their people. Uh, we tend to be pretty individualistic, and we don't think that way. We think about me, but not the whole. Uh, an example from the scriptures, uh, 1 Samuel 17, the battle of David and Goliath. You've probably heard uh, some bad sermons or Bible lessons about how, like David, you need to be courageous and conquer your giants. Uh, the interesting thing about that passage is it's the only battle in the entire Bible that is one-on-one. It's just David and just Goliath. It's representative combat. In fact, if you're anybody in that story, you're the Israelites who are too scared to do anything and who can't do anything. Um, In that battle, David represents God's people. His victory becomes their victory. Goliath likewise represents God's enemies. His defeat becomes their defeat. Um, And this idea of corporate representation is at the heart of the gospel, right? We, we We can be right with God and have fellowship with him because Jesus was right with God, and he, in the gospel, represents us. And that's important here, uh, because what we'll see in Revelation 17 through 19 is that there are two figures. One is a prostitute, and the other is a bride. And each of these figures represents and is the culmination of the people of the world and the people of, the God, uh, people of God, the people of the world and the people of God. Uh, they, 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 they each are singular figures that represent the many. We're going to see two ways of life and where they end. Keep that in mind as we read today. Final thing. This is the longest passage I think I have ever taught through and may ever teach through. We're going to read most of it. We won't read everything. That's not because I'm a heretic or that I want to skip the hard stuff. Um, I just don't want you guys to get lost because this passage is long but it really teaches one main thing. So just real quickly, I'm going to walk through what we are going to read and what we're not going to read just so you understand. So we are going to read chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. It will describe a prostitute riding a beast. We'll see that that prostitute is a great city and that this beast is the ruler of this end times kingdom. We're not going to read verses uh, 7 to 14. Uh, Those are some very interesting verses about the timing of the beast coming. I can answer questions at the end of the lesson if you're interested in those things. But we've already learned about the beast from Revelation 13. This passage primarily just reminds us that he is the end times ruler. He's a wicked king. We will read uh, chapter 17, verse 15, all the way to 18.10, which describes the judgment and fall of this prostitute of this great city. We're not going to read verse, chapter 18, verses 11 to 25, which is um, all of these evil people who are mourning that their evil city has been destroyed. And finally, we'll read chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, which describes the bride of Christ. So let's, uh, let's hear God's word about these two women, each of whom represents every soul in this room. Hear the scriptures. Starting in Revelation 17. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and 
with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Go to verse 15. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are many peoples and multitudes and nations and languages and the ten horns that you saw. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until all the words of God are fulfilled. And that woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, and no, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come upon her in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Go to chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, all you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult 
and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Our God, with the psalmist, we, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we could see wonderful things in your law. We pray that in this passage that just seems like it comes from another world would, would just really give us a vision for these two ways of life, these two women, and uh, give us a desire to be your bride and your church. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most interesting things as I approach 30 is looking uh, to where my high school friends are now. I have one high school friend who is a felon, uh, went to prison for some pretty nasty stuff. I've got another high school friend who graduated college with a, a degree that could get him a lot of money. And he chose to serve in the Peace Corps in a horribly dangerous and impoverished nation uh, and now has come back to go to med school, not to pay his loans off, but to help people in need. And in that process, uh, he's become an atheist and somehow continues to do all of these selfless, incredible things as an atheist. Blows my mind. Another one of my high school friends is an elder at this church and one of my lifelong best friends. It's crazy where you can end up. Uh, in high school, a lot of us hung out together. We kind of all seemed to be the same. You know, there are cliques and groups in high school. There are cool kids and kids that get picked on, all those kind of things. But really, if you just look at our lives objectively, they, they looked about the same. We had parents, we went to school, we made some good decisions, some bad decisions. But in our lives, there were these little seeds, these little attitudes, these secret dreams and secret sins that inevitably shaped the direction of our lives, whether that led us to prison or the Peace Corps. And it is certainly hard to imagine your non-Christian neighbor or coworker or yourself even as this prostitute we see in Revelation 17, drunk on the blood of the saints, reveling in her immorality and the luxury she's won from oppression. It's probably equally hard to imagine other Christians, especially the ones that drive you crazy, as the beautiful and radiant bride of Christ in Revelation 19. And that is precisely what is so helpful about this passage. It gives us a picture of the end, of the culmination, of where these two ways of life end up. It's kind of like we're in high school, wondering who we should hang out with or we, if, if we should go to that party or if we should start that evil habit or try that substance that our friend offers us. And John takes us 15 years into the future and shows us that this one time will set me on a path towards prison or death. Or maybe that hanging out with the not so cool people 
will set me on a path that will lead to a wonderful, blessed life. So what we're going to see is trajectory. We're going to see where these two ways of life go. They either go to this prostitute, this evil, wicked city, full of all of the possible pleasures evil can bring that goes straight to judgment. Or life goes towards this bride, this radiant, beautiful bride. We're going to be called to flee Babylon so we can rejoice with the bride. Let's see how. So first, let's see who Babylon is and how we might leave her. First, we'll talk about Babylon's identity. If you're just jumping into Revelation uh, and you read verse 3, and you see a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. That's a little confusing. Uh, but notice the passage helps us out a little bit. Verse 5, <clears throat> she has a name on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. If you need more help, verse 18 helps us even more. It says, or chapter 17, verse 18. Sorry, I'll, I'll try to keep you guys grounded. Chapter 17, verse 18. Uh, and the woman that you saw, this prostitute, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So this prostitute, this bride, or this, uh, this Babylon, she is a great city. Uh, in fact, she's the great city. Uh, if you notice, she's riding the beast, the, the imagery there. So if, you, if you've been in Revelation, Revelation 13 prophesies that there's this beast, this evil end times ruler who's going to conquer the world, kind of like a Hitler who wins. He's going to conquer the world, and this woman is riding on him. The idea there is this is the city uh, that gives all the cultural and economic sway to the beast empire. It's the capital city of his empire. I think this is actually a real city. It's not uh, just an image. I think there will be a real end-time city like this city. Um, and I think it's helpful to just understand the context of the Bible here. There have always been great, evil, wicked cities opposed to God. Just read your scriptures. It all starts in uh, Genesis chapter 10. Interestingly enough, in Babel, uh, the very city that becomes Babylon eventually, uh, the first place humanity banded together. You've also got Sodom, Gomorrah, Nineveh, um, and then, of course, you have Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, according to Jesus. There's something about a lot of people in the same place that is just a petri dish for rebellion against God. We see it today, right? Las Vegas has been called Sin City for years. Me and Sarah vacationed in San Francisco, and our friends who we stayed with there told us that on their first day of work, a group of 20 people streaked by them in the street, and they learned that actually street streaking is legal in San Francisco. And we, we passed a, a homeless gentleman on the side of the road with, with a sign that basically said, I need money uh, to buy drugs, and there were people giving him money. It's crazy. Um, we just had New York State with its center of power and influence in New York City, pass a law that allows people to murder children in the womb up to the day they are born. Now, of course, I just want to be clear here, there are many wonderful Jesus-loving Christians in all of those cities. The cities need the gospel. We want to love our cities. But you've just got to recognize they can be places of great cultural rebellion against God. And what's going to happen in history as the people of the world continue to walk apart from God is history will culminate in one great city, I think an actual city. Um, 
that is the center of the Antichrist power that is just like this woman described here. She's the capital city ruling over the whole world. Notice in verse 15, it helps us see that. Uh, there's a prostitute seated on the waters, and these waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. This is, this is the, the, the city of influence in the world. So that's, that, that's the identity of the prostitute of, this, of Babylon, great city. Next, notice her description. What will she be like? Notice first, the main image for this city is a prostitute. Of course, you guys all know that a prostitute is someone who sells their body, who sells sex, who commits immorality in order to have money. And that's not a very pleasant image, but I think it's helpful for a couple of reasons. Uh, it gives this idea that Babylon, this city, is one that offers evil pleasures and comforts for a price. Uh, the pleasures might very well be sexual. I think that's so, so much in this passage. I'm sure that's a part of it. There are many other evil pleasures a city like this could offer. Um, parts of the passage we didn't read. You see these merchants, these, uh, these businessmen who are mourning because now that Babylon's destroyed, they can't make any more money. So there's money in this city. There's comfort. There's luxury. Everything a great city can give you. But there's a price, and the price is that you just have to sell Jesus. You can have all the sex and money and comfort and pleasure you want in Babylon, but you must sell your soul. I think that's the idea. In the scriptures, oftentimes, idolatry, loving, treasuring things besides Christ, God calls that spiritual adultery. He calls it being like a prostitute. Notice again that if you're, if you're not convinced this is a worldwide thing, this, this Babylon is representative of the whole world, notice a few things in verse 2. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and the wine of her sexual immorality has made the dwellers on earth drunk. So the most influential people in the world, the kings at this time, they're all in love with Babylon. The peoples of the earth, they're all drunk on the wine of her abomination. This is the whole world pictured right here. And a prostitute drunk on the blood of the saints. But notice, she's a very attractive prostitute. Don't miss this in verse 4. She's decked out. She's got purple and scarlet. That's the most expensive kind of linen you could have in the ancient world. She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's very rich. The cup she has full of her abominations is a golden cup. There's a gleam to it. It's attractive. Don't forget that the Bible reminds us that oftentimes wickedness can be very attractive. In fact, the book of Hebrews goes as far as to say that there are temporary pleasures to sin. That there's a reason we want to sin. It's, it feels good. We've all had an experience, right, where we see something or someone that we know we shouldn't be attracted to, but we are. You're watching a Netflix show, things are going great, and then that steamy scene pops up, and you know that you should turn it off, but you just can't. You're like a fly going towards the the buzzer. Maybe there's a person of the opposite sex whom you know deep down is going to be terrible for you, but you flirt with them or even date them just because it's thrilling. That's the idea here. This, this great city, the world today heading there, she's attractive in the worst way. She appeals to our hearts. 
Though she's attractive, she's unspeakably evil. Look at verse 6, the height of her description, the, the final thing we see. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. She's like a vampire coming up from the kill, blood going down her mouth. She's murdered God's people. She's done one of the worst things you can do. And she's not just murdering them, she's drunk on their blood. She's so happy, uh, exultant in her murder of God's people. She's like a drunk person at a party, out of control, having a blast. So we have this great end-time city representing the world, where the world goes. She is luxurious and attractive and unspeakably evil. And the second half of 17 and the rest of 18 show us her end, what happens to Babylon. We see what happens to the mean girl in high school. Babylon goes to judgment. Look at verse 16. This is interesting, a little complicated. Uh, The ten horns which were on the beast, uh, representing probably uh, ten kings that will work with the Antichrist in some way. That's a difficult part of the verse. But they and the beast, the Antichrist, they'll hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. In other words, at some point in time, the ruler of the world turns on this great city and destroys it. Maybe they drop a nuke. Maybe they burn it the old-fashioned way. It doesn't really matter. The interesting thing here is verse, uh, verse 17 as God's put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. In other words, God allows evil to destroy evil. It's very interesting. Uh, it's not just, a, I think this is probably representative of a, of a temporal judgment. There's an actual city that actually gets destroyed by evildoers, right? Uh, but it goes much further than that. Uh, notice, uh, notice how the language becomes eternal here. We can actually just skip the the clearest picture of this uh, all the way to chapter 19, verse 3. The saints in heaven cry, hallelujah, talking about Babylon's destruction. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. In other words, whether this is just a picture of final judgment or an actual city that's judged, what we're talking about here is final judgment. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. It never stops. There's no end to her torment or pain because of what she's done. So, this city's yet to come. What do we do today? Look at chapter 18, verse 4. There's another voice coming from heaven speaking to us. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven. God's people are called to leave Babylon. And we don't want to take this physically, right? Remember the original audience of Revelation were these seven uh, persecuted, struggling churches in the Roman Empire, um, struggling in various ways. Uh, They were not called to pick up their bags and figure out a way out of Rome. Um, They're called to spiritually leave the world and its values, uh, to flee um, to, to recognize Babylon in their midst, in their hearts, and to run away from it. Otherwise, they will take part in her judgment. It's a very strong warning. Maybe it's a question to, to help you out here. What is most attractive to you about this prostitute? 
I think that's where you're going to see your temptations. Um, it's going to see where God is calling you to leave. Is, is it the, the plainest thing here, sexual sin? Right? Notice that's all over the passage. Anytime there is cultural rebellion against God, there is sexual immorality. There are people in this room enslaved secretly to <coughs> pornography. There are people probably in this room crossing boundaries they should not be crossing. This passage says, listen, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ, but you must flee. You must be radical in fleeing Babylon. Maybe that's not it for you, though. It's not, you know, everybody's got a little bit of Babylon in us, but maybe the promise for you here that's so, uh, so appealing is luxury, money, power, significance, high positions, the approval of people. Babylon offers all of that. Whatever it is, you've got to flee. We can't camp on this last part, but the rest of chapter 18 that we didn't read, it's a series of mourning over Babylon. It's a funeral procession. And everybody who was involved with Babylon, the kings, the merchants, the sailors, all the people who benefited, all they're doing is mourning. And the idea here is the wages of sin is death. You align yourself with her, you give yourself to her, you, you, you live your life with her values, this is what happens. It only ends in pain. So flee. The one who calls you to flee Babylon has made a provision for you and given you power to flee Babylon. Uh, just consider for a second, we, we look at this verse at Connect for a few minutes uh, on Thursday, but consider 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Jesus, the one who is pouring out judgment in this passage. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There are two really crucial things this verse tells us. First is that Jesus bore in his body our sins, that he's paid for them, that all of your Babylon-esque living, all of your love for pleasure and money and opposed to God, Jesus has taken that judgment already. He's borne God's wrath for you. It's finished. If you're in Christ, if you come to him by repentance and faith, if you trust him, if you turn your life to him, right, you're forgiven, you're clean, you're free. There's no punishment left. You can come. That's glorious news. But that's not the only news here. Notice, uh, Jesus died. He did this so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's not just forgiveness in the gospel. There's power in it. God grants you in Christ the power to overcome sin. As you look to him, as you trust him, he changes what allures you. He gives you the ability to say no. So flee Babylon by faith. Flee those things in your heart by faith. Trust, rest in Christ, not just as you're the one who forgives you, but the one who empowers you. So that's Babylon. That's who she is, where she's going, and what we should do. But next, we're going to see the bride. In fact, uh, I think the whole point of this long passage is to put them up next to each other, to give you a comparison, to help you see the fate that God has for his people. If the little seeds of rebellion against God today head to Babylon, the little seeds of faithfulness to Jesus head towards this bride. She becomes everything Babylon is not. And in fact, she has everything that Babylon offers except pure, purity 
and in righteousness. You actually get the, the, the things that Babylon appeals to. You actually get those forever in Jesus if you walk with him. We'll see this. Notice, notice the bride's joy, 19.1 and 19.6. We see this great multitude in heaven crying out. Uh, this brings us all the way back to chapter 7, where we see this great multitude of every people, nation, and tribe, and tongue gathered before the throne, uh, loving Christ, proclaiming how good he is. And uh, she's this bride, we see. But notice the focus here is on her praise and joy. The only time this little word occurs in the whole New Testament is right here. Hallelujah. Over and over and over again. That, you could say the highest praise. It's, it's, they, they, are, they are so happy and so filled with life. They can't help but sing. Like, it's not like they're, they're like trying to figure out what they should write in response to God and what he's done. They're so happy, it flows from their lips. This highest praise for God's rescue and his goodness. The church is full of life. They're in glory. Notice, Babylon is drunk. She's got this temporary, out-of-control, evil joy. The church has the real thing. The bride will have the real thing. Notice next, Babylon's in his judgment. The bride's end is a marriage feast. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory because the marriage of the lamb, the lamb is a, an image for Jesus in Revelation. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. One verse later we see, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper or marriage feast of the lamb. Now, there's a lot uh, in this image. We're going to try to unpack a little bit of it. But notice, for, for most girls, most of them, their wedding day is the day they dream of and plan for their whole lives. A lot of them, anyways. All right, but for everybody involved in a wedding feast, maybe except for the crazy family members, all right? For everyone involved, it's a lot of fun. The reception is always the highlight. In fact, as a preacher at weddings, I notice most people at a, at a wedding are like, get on with it so we can go party. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing in today's world, right? But it's a nice little picture. Uh, wedding feasts are places of joy. It's a, there's a party. It's a feast. Um, the idea is that the bride of Christ, wherever she is now, she is heading to the night that every party and feast has pointed to. But there's more to this, I think. Um, there's a little more to this image, I think, of a wedding feast here. Uh, for someone who wants to live in purity, uh, who is engaged and wants to be married, um, a wedding day does not just represent fun, it represents consummation. It represents the bride and husband, or the, the bride and husband finally belonging to each other, finally having the freedom to enjoy each other fully, finally being able to be one. Might be a little steamy for Sunday school, but that's, that's the point. Um, the church is heading towards consummation with her Lord. And if that, that image like weirds you out a little bit, let me just help explain this. Our desires uh, for sex are not just physical ones. Like in fact, in fact, the reason sex is so appealing and drawing to us, the reason it's such a big struggle, is there's more going on. There's desires for intimacy and affection. There's these deep heart desires to be one, to be lost in someone else. And the idea here is that in heaven, in glory, 
all of those desires are met and fulfilled and overflowing forever. That's, that's what it means when we talk about Jesus and his bride being married. So it's a great day. Again, notice Babylon has temporary pleasure in immorality. The church has the pure, full joy of consummation forever. Finally, notice the bride's description. Babylon is rebellious, but the bride is beautiful. Very end of verse 7, we see the bride has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There's a day coming when the church will no longer be blemished, when we won't just be a group of sinners struggling to get along. There will be no more struggles with depression or discontentment or dark secret sins. There is a day coming when you, if you continue with Jesus, you will be clothed in beauty and righteousness. The prostitute has what looks like beauty. The bride gets the real thing forever. And she gets it because God wills that. Notice just how gracious verse 8 is. It's granted her to clothe herself. That that God's will in the gospel, in fact, the power of the gospel, is not just that now, over time, it'll overcome sin and become more beautiful. That is the truth. But what will happen is the gospel itself, Jesus' death for sinners, his resurrection to new life, that means that when you die in Christ, you become perfectly radiant forever. You, you become one with Christ in his righteousness and truth and beauty, freed from sin. So the bride will rejoice, and the bride will go to consummation, and she will be beautiful. Notice there's one little verse of application to us. Um, verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This word, blessed, which I think we take out of context a little bit um, with our hashtag blessed Instagram posts. But um, this, uh, this idea of, of blessing is, is godly happiness. It really does mean happiness, like, like full joy and contentment. Oftentimes we think of blessings as like tangible things in this life, but this is the idea of you are a happy person. You are, you are fortunate. You're lucky. It's wonderful to be someone invited to the marriage feast. And you may not feel that, um, so I'm, I'm going to try to give you guys a long example and bring it back to a little application. We'll see if I, I can do that. Uh, I like to joke with couples uh, that are dating and approaching engagement that engagement is the worst phase of life. Um, and of course, because we're sinners, every relationship phase has battles and blessings, right? Like singleness can be lonely and isolating. Dating can be very frustrating and emotionally confusing. Marriage can be difficult. There's all sorts of stuff. Um, but, but really, engagement feels like the worst. Um, because, there's, 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 here's, here's why, I think. Um, when you're engaged and you want to be faithful to Jesus, here's what happens. You have all of the responsibilities and stresses and struggles of a married couple and a giant event to plan, and none of the pleasures uh, and benefits of a married couple. Um, you, your personality junk comes out, your family junk comes out, 
you got to figure it out, deal with it, uh, and then you got to drive home at night. Um, you've got people being crazy. You're being crazy. Uh, I'll never forget this. Uh, on my wedding day, me and Sarah had just vowed our lives to each other, walked out of the church. I think we took pictures. I don't know. We get in, get in the car, head to the reception, all right? And I just sat there, and I looked over, and I said, so how are you? Uh, how was your day? And uh, that seems very anticlimactic. That might have been the first time I'd asked her that in three months. Because we were just running around busy playing this event. One family's threatening not to come to the wedding. Our friends are coming in town. They're being useless. Some of my friends are playing pranks on me. Like, it's just been very stressful and ridiculous this whole season. Um, and finally, how are you? All right? And there's a sense in which uh, our lives in Christ, uh, in this life, we will be in, we're engaged to Jesus. He has said yes, right? He has put a ring on it, as we like to say. Um, <laughs> but we spend most of our lives longing for consummation. We might have little tastes of the pleasures and benefits of being married to Christ, but we do not see it yet. And we have the overwhelming responsibilities of being faithful to Jesus. We're called to come and die the, uh, the Apostle Paul's motto for his Christian life was this, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Talk about a life verse. It's not that we don't have joy, but it's kind of like this far-off joy in the middle of stress. Here's the kicker, though. Who has the clearest and most appropriate perspective on a couple who's engaged? It's not the engaged couple. They're in the middle of it. It's not the married couple who kind of has these fond, laughable memories about it. It's the single person who longs for marriage. They see the truth. When they see the, the engaged couple walk in, oh, this is the worst, you know, like she's being crazy, my family's being crazy, right? They see the truth. You guys are blessed. You're stressed because God has given you one of the best blessings there is. They see that clearly. And consider, just for a second, what a non-Christian would say to you if they could see the truth. You have a Father in heaven. You have a spouse for your soul. God himself has said yes to you. You have a future reign with Christ coming, as we'll see. You have a new heavens and new earth. You'll be free from sin, satisfied forever. How can you be grumpy about your life right now? How can you complain when that's your future? I'm saying that as somebody who's frequently grumpy and frequently complains. But if you're invited to this feast, if that's true about you, if you're really heading here, if this is your future, you are the happiest of people, whether you sense that now or not. And if you can't, if you can't believe that, ask God for faith. Ask him to give that to you. I'll just say, as a, as a side note, as we kind of wrap up, um, if you're someone who longs for marriage and doesn't have it, doesn't feel like there are any prospects, you might even be losing hope, that's a possibility. Uh, if, if that's you, look at the language here. There's a reason this passage, uh, of all the passages about heaven, this passage couches it in marriage terms. The idea here is whatever happens in your life, you will have a real marriage one day. All of the things that married life represents clear direction like a next step 
a companion, someone to be with, the pleasures of sex, right? The, the seeming purpose of having a family, all those things. All those things, if you are faithful to Jesus, you will have those forever. You, do, you will not miss out if you're single your entire life. In fact, uh, Christianity uniquely in the ancient world was a religion that uplifted singleness as a viable way of life. In fact, Roman culture, Jewish culture, if you were single, they saw you as half a person. Christianity uniquely, you know, right? The two biggest founders were single, Jesus and Paul. The idea is that then you don't have to get married now. You have marriage coming. Just trust the Lord with that. Whether or not the Lord brings a human spouse to you in this life, you are blessed and headed here. You've been spoken for. You're desired. So uh, today we have seen two very different women, Babylon and the bride. We have seen two very different peoples and the end of where their lives go. But there's only really one question to consider as we think about our lives. Whose am I? If my lifestyle told me who I belong to, which would it be? If you're feeling like Babylon, it's time to flee today. If you're feeling like the bride, spoken for but longing, it's time to rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thanks for this passage and thanks for your kindness to us. And we just pray now uh, that you would give us the faith uh, to receive what you've said this morning. I pray you would bring to mind, uh, to me and to everyone here, ways we are flirting with Babylon this morning. And that you would bring to mind and help us to taste the joy that is ahead. Make these realities real to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.